This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 8. This is Writing Excuses, Q&A on a ship. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I've been on this ship for several days now. <laughs> Which is a lot longer than 15 minutes. We are here at the 2019 Writing Excuses Retreat on a cruise ship in the Caribbean Sea. Actually, right now we're in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we have a live audience in front of us. Say hello, live audience. Awesome. And we have asked them to uh, ask us some questions. Our theme this whole year is the questions of the audience. We've been trying to answer them. We'll continue doing that throughout. Now we have some live ones. So our first question, tell us your name and your question. This is Caleb. I'm wondering what uh, any of you have learned in the past year that has improved your craft. What any of us have learned in the past year that has improved our craft... I actually learned the value of um, talking to my editor uh, really early in the process. One of the things that that happened to me um, this year was that I had a number of events that derailed me um, from writing. I was working on a novel, and my usual process did not work. Uh, so, And when I say editor, what I, I guess I mean is using an outboard brain. Uh, my usual process was not working because I kept having life things go wrong. Um, there were some family members in hospitals, and then we were moving, and it was just a lot of things. Uh, and going to someone else and saying, I cannot hold the story in my head, please help me focus, was immensely valuable and actually got me back on track. That's convenient because the lesson I learned this year was to talk to my clients early in the process <laughs> to make sure that everything's on track. And, you know, I think one of the things that I learned that kind of lined up with that is to not be afraid to push people to do the thing that is hard, right? And that sometimes, you know, when you're giving editorial feedback, because you're working with somebody who puts their heart and soul into a manuscript, into a book, you want to be you want to be nice, right? You want to go easy on them in certain ways because you like this person, you work with this person. And, you know, for me, one of the things I've had to really learn in this past year is to get involved early and don't be afraid of saying, is this really the right choice? Is this the best way to get where you're going? And sometimes breaking it down and doing the hard work is the most important thing, whether or not that's going to make someone upset. For me, it was uh, when, I, when I joined the uh, uh, typecast RPG role-playing game and decided that, yeah, you know what, for fun, I think I'm going to try to live sketch things that happened during the game. Um, the, the pressure there being, you know, I need to turn out a, what is ultimately a single-panel comic strip that depends on the context of the game in a minute and a half. Um, and then we did a live show at Fanex and they set up an Elmo and I, to, to borrow the metaphor, screwed the courage to the wall and said, I'm going to make terrible, terrible mistakes and I'm going to do it when my arms are 10 feet long on this screen <laughs> behind me, but I'm going to do it anyway because it might be fun. And it unlocked a piece of my brain that allowed me to visualize more quickly and draw faster and draw things I'd never drawn before. 
Fantastic. Uh, just really quick for me, um, and I talked about this in one of the classes that I taught here on the retreat, the uh, Lindsay Ellis's episode about uh, three-act structure and the way that she explained it made three-act structure work for me in a way it never has before. So everyone go watch that. It's brilliant. All right, we have another question. Hi, my name is Allison, and my question is, when you're having trouble, how do you know if it's a I don't feel like writing today problem or there's a structural problem that your mind is trying to ignore because it would be difficult to deal with? I wish I knew the answer to that one. Um, <laughs> that's a really super common problem. The, the way I evaluate it is whether or not, uh, is, is to interrogate the, the, question, the, the problem that I'm having. Um, and I look at the problem and I'm like, okay, what is the barrier between me and moving this story forward? And if, it's, if I can't identify a barrier, that means that it's probably me. It is not actually the story. Um, if it is, it, sometimes it is, uh, there is actually a problem with the story that is really difficult to diagnose. And that's when handing it to someone else to look at becomes useful. But most of the time, if I ask just what is the barrier that is between me and moving forward or the character and moving forward, um, that will unlock what the problem is. I've found that uh, for a lot of people, by the time you reach a point in your writing career where you're comfortable answering this question, you may have moved beyond actually writing down the equivalent of a pre-flight checklist. But having a pre-flight checklist, having a way to take inventory of the things that can be wrong, uh, they might be uh, diagnostic tools like uh, you know pacing, three-act structure, character arc, conflict, uh, you know seven-point whatever. The sorts of things that that we talk about here on writing writing excuses all the time. Uh, when I'm writing jokes, I have this sort of checklist. Um, I've internalized it. But what I found is that when I am stuck, uh, I have to take inventory. Um, a lot of the times it's me. I haven't had enough sleep. I haven't eaten correctly. I'm exhausted because of an emotional thing. The temperature in the room is wrong and it's making me grouchy. Uh, this character is at the wrong point in their character arc for me to write the scene that I want to write. Therefore, I don't feel justified in writing it. And by the time I'm able to articulate these things, the unlocking starts starts moving really quickly. I, I can see where the problems are and where the problems aren't. I think it's probably the most frustrating advice I give and also the most important advice that I like to give is that you need to learn to trust your instincts, right? But this is a case where it's very hard to tell where the line between your conscious thought and your instinct is. So, you know, the thing I think about a lot is what Howard was just talking about is the ways in which your conscious and subconscious mind are connected to your embodiment, right? So, you know, a lot of things that can help here are really core mental health and mindfulness techniques, right? Meditation, yoga, go for a run, go take a shower, go take a break. Find something that uses up part of your brain so your subconscious can chew on it and then come back to it when you're feeling calm and relaxed and centered and try and get in touch with, you know, what is your core emotion here? What is your instinct telling you versus what is your fear telling you, right? And if that instinct is saying, actually, there's a structural problem here, then, you know, focus on that and do that hard work. Mm -hmm. um, on average, if you're having that question, you're probably right that the problem is bigger than I don't feel like writing right now. 
on average. Yeah, I I forgot that I have an entire blog post on this um, that we'll put in the liner notes, uh, which is, um, and for those people who never go to look at the liner notes, you can search for it. Uh, It's uh, called Sometimes Writer's Block is Really Depression. And I talk about how to diagnose um, the kind of uh, delays that you are having and the kind of, you know, like if you're drowsy, it's probably that your story is boring. Um, if you are restless, it's probably that you don't actually know the next thing that's going to happen um, or you don't believe it to actually, I think. Um, but anyway, sometimes writer's block is really depression. It includes how to diagnose it and then a long list of tools for when it is the problem is not with the manuscript, but uh, external to the manuscript, to your own life. Um, some things to help you move forward. Awesome. Cool. Uh, next question. Hello, my name is Matt Chambers. My question is, as published professional authors, how far ahead do you plan the futures of your careers? Do you know what genres, series, or even specific books that you'll be working on in five years or in 15 years? Well, now years I'm ago. just depressed. <laughs> uh, Ten years ago... Um, I could have told you that, uh, you know, 10 years from now, I would definitely still be doing Schlock Mercenary. Uh, five years ago, I could have told you when the major Schlock Mercenary mega arc was going to end. Uh, two years ago, I could have but wouldn't have told you uh, how it was going to end and what all of the book plans and uh, plot plans were around that. Uh, this year, I am rethinking all of that because I was probably an idiot, uh, but I'm committed, so I'm sticking to it in a blind panic. <laughs> committed idiot is actually a great thing to put on my business cards. Um, six years ago, I had the very best year of my career up to that point and since. Uh, and I thought oh at the time that I knew what I would be doing six years later and had no idea that um, one of my publishers was going to dry up completely, that one of my series was going to tank abysmally. Uh, and so... Kind of my answer to this is that it is very smart to plan ahead, but that this industry is very volatile. And a lesson I did not learn early enough is how to plan around that volatility. The good news is we're going to have one and possibly two episodes on this exact topic later in the year with Dong Wan uh, about how to plan out your career and how that career can change and how to reboot it when it falls apart. Yeah, I love talking to my clients about strategy. And a lot of times, with most of them, we're planning three, four, you know, not even books, like three to four contracts out, right? And a contract can be two to three books. So it's what are we doing here? What's coming after that? What's coming after that? The important thing, as Dan kind of touched on, is that you have to be sort of ready to throw all of that out at the drop of a hat, right? Uh, Publishing is extremely volatile. You have no idea what's going to happen when that book hits the market. So you have to be kind of ready to jump in a different direction. And sometimes you have backup plans and sometimes you don't. But always have some thinking of some roadmap of where you want to go and then be ready to build a new one when you need to. Yeah, I, um, much like everyone else, my plans change. Uh, The things that for me that the metrics that have been working um, is that I have uh, I have kept my income stream diversified. So that's why I have three different careers running simultaneously so that when one of them is not doing well, one of the I can fill in the gaps with one of the others. Um, I also think about the shape that I want my career to take. And that generally is that I want to be able to turn down the gigs that I don't want to do, um, which 
means that, you know, if a really lucrative contract comes in, then I'm like, that looks, I mean, the money looks really great, but I don't want to be pigeonholed into doing that kind of work. That's not, that is something that I can think about turning down and then I can decide in the moment. Um, I have a giant list of novels I want to write. I won't get to write them all probably, um, but I keep them. Um, And then I I think the last piece of advice that I was just given this past year Um, I was in an enviable position, which is that I had just won the Nebula and the Locus, and we were looking at the Hugo, and I was like, people kept saying, well, you're going to win it. I'm like, you can't think that. That's not healthy. certainly not healthy for me. Um, And then my agent, Seth Fishman, said that I should think about it like applying to college, that you don't know whether or not you're going to get into college, but you make plans for both scenarios, you make plans for, well, if I get into college, I'm going to need to be able to put these things into place. And if I don't get into college, then these are the backup plans that I have, and this is going to how, I'm, how I'm going to occupy my life. And so I think that that's one of the things that, um, that is very useful, is to think about the possible cusp points in your career and, and to think about positive outcomes for either cusp point. Um, and so that's that has been very helpful for me. Fortunately, I did get into college in this particular scenario. Um, but... It, it was also, even the positive things can rock you if you were not prepared for them. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Awesome. I want to pause right now for our book of the week, which is also Mary Robinette. Yes, I want to talk about a book called uh, Jade War, which is the sequel to Fonda Lee's, uh, wait, yes, to the sequel to Fonda Lee's Jade City. I just had this moment of thinking that I had them backwards. Um, so I blurbed the first book, uh, and the second book is every bit as fantastic. It is The Godfather meets like a kung fu wire film. It's secondary world fantasy, but it feels like 1960s or 70s uh, earth, but there are people who can use jade and they can do magic, um, except they don't think of it as magic. It's just part of them. It's just completely woven into the world. It feels so real that I am surprised that it is not. Um, the relationships are compelling. Um, and if you, uh, if you are someone who likes a well-written sex scene, it is not the entirety of the book, but there are a couple in there that are, um, some of the hottest and, uh, like, really beautifully drawn consensual sex scenes. Um, and the consensual part is the part that I find appealing, but the, just the entire thing, it's, it's great. It's um, Jade War by Fonda Lee. Cool. Thank you very much. Now, we still have several questions to get left, uh, and 
we want to try to get to them all. We're going to let this episode run a little long, but we're going to call this the lightning round, okay? So ask your question, and then one of us will answer it instead of all four. So, go. Okay, hey guys, my name is uh, Cameron. I was wondering, how do you tell when a fight or a battle or a climactic final showdown is going on for too long? When, when you I wonder go- if it's gone on too long. Ha <laughs> 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 ha! Excellent answer. Next. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caitlin. How do you continue to learn and improve on your writing craft now that you're further in your career? Have there been any times that you felt like you plateaued, and what did you do about it? I learned by teaching. Uh, when I was uh, pup- tr- getting trained in puppetry, um, what my instructor had me do was he would have me learn everything with my right hand. He would teach it to me with my right hand, and then he would have me teach my left hand how to do it. And what he said was that anytime you have to externalize and explain what you're doing, even if it's to yourself, that it causes you to uh, hone your craft and to get rid of the parts that aren't important. And I find that when I am teaching students, even if it's someone that is a peer and just saying, hey, this is the thing that I've learned today, um, even if they don't necessarily need to know it, but I'm talking through the process, that it makes me better at my craft. Hi, I'm Jessica. Uh, When you're working on multiple projects, how do you manage or prioritize yourself such that you don't get too disconnected from one project while you're working on another? My answer to that uh, has always been that I will identify the different phases that each project has to go through and make sure that I'm not doubling them up. So I'm never writing two things at a time, but I can be writing one while revising another or outlining another or editing or proofing or whatever it is. And that way it makes it much easier for me to keep them in my brain because they're all in different parts of my brain. Hi, I'm Kevin. Um, If you've got multiple characters with very strong voices, uh, how do you feel about having multiple first-person perspectives? Horribly bad idea or just really difficult? Um, I, I love the way POV use changes in our culture over time. I think that, uh, I, I think that, that could work. Uh, I don't know that I've seen it done, but I've thought about doing it myself. And I think that 20 years from now, that could end up being the rule rather than, rather than an exception because these sorts of things are, are cultural. If, if it's what you want to do, go for it. Yeah, I just want to jump in with one little note is the thing I run into a lot from writers and in the writing community is people think about POV really, really rigidly. They're like, if I start in third person limited, I have to stay that way all throughout. Whereas, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of things that are really pushing back against that. Uh, Nor N.K. Jemisin's uh, Fifth Season is a really great example. Uh, Even Robert Jackson Bennett's Foundry Side, you'll see POV jump around from first person to third person. You'll see 10 shifts, things like that. So feel free to, to really sort of experiment with the different perspectives and the different POVs that you have, you can drop into one just for a chapter or a scene, and then they can never reappear again. So, you know, feel free to try different things and experiment and see how it reads. Um, I think writers and crit groups are very focused on consistent POV. I don't think readers even notice. Hi, I'm Emma. Um, What are the most important elements to include on the last page of your book? Ooh, your Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) So what I think about when I get to the end um, is it is a frame. Um, And I am framing something that I set up at the beginning. At the beginning, I made promises 
to the reader. And one of the things that I promised them is that they would feel a certain way when they get to the end. So when I look at that last paragraph, I think about it as the beginning in reverse, the inverse of that. And I try to make sure that I am showing um, who my character is now, uh, where they are now, and, and the ways in which things have shifted. Um, and doing that in a way that the, makes the reader have that emotional uh, punch that I had been going for through the entire thing. Like if I had been if I had been wanting to have them have a sense of dread all the way through and then the catharsis of relief, then that, that last thing needs to have, contain relief. If I, if I want them to still feel dread, then that last thing still needs to have dread in it. So it's, it's, uh, for me, it's, it's the frame, it's the button, um, and that's what I look for at the end. Hi, I'm Jez. What are some things we can do to work on developing and strengthening voice when writing in the third person? I can take that one. Do it. <laughs> um, so, uh, coming from it from theater and, and audiobook, uh, the thing about third person and the way it is is that it is actually still very much first person in in this real simple way. The narrator is telling a story to the audience, uh, and the narrator is sometimes very closely linked to a third person character. But even so, there is a storyteller who is speaking to the audience. What you're looking for with the voice are rhythms that are linked to the character's personality. Um, if it is a tight, limited third person, uh, you want to use everything. Um, you want to make sure that the idioms that you're using, the metaphors that they're using, that these are all linked to how they self-define themselves. Um, and all of that is going to make the character feel specific and vivid in ways that uh, aiming for the so-called transparent prose will not. Hi, I'm Morgan. How do you decide who works best as an alpha reader and who works better as a beta reader? Sad, sorry experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that really is the answer. I know uh, Mary Robinette and I, for example, have very different uh, criteria as to who we count as an alpha and who we count as a beta uh, reader. And that, it all comes down to experience and, and personal preference, I think. For, for my own part, an alpha reader, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I've handed it to an alpha reader and gotten it back, I want to feel energized about doing the things that need to be done to, to fix it. I want my alpha readers to energize me. My beta readers, uh, I want to be a little more critical and to help me you know, fine-tune things. Um, but I'm fragile that way. Yeah, and I'm just to, to demonstrate that we are sometimes counter. Well, the thing that I'm looking for in a beta, in an alpha reader is someone who is asking me the right questions to help me unpack it a little bit farther, so that the beta readers are getting something that is closer to the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, and the beta readers, I am using them as a general, but the alpha reader for me, the alpha reader um, in in this case uh, is Alessandra Meekham most of the time, and she is. Uh, she's what is sometimes called the ideal reader, which is that she represents the core audience that I am writing for. And so um, so when I'm writing, I am specifically writing to see whether or not I make her go, oh, I love this, or I hate this so much. And that often pleases me a great deal. Um, so so it depends on how you're using them. Um, I'm, I'm using her to, um, to shape the story. And, and I've spotted, sometimes I'll spot someone in, in beta and go, oh, 
oh, you, you also sit in that ideal reader category. And there are some stories that I'm going to write at some point that will, she will not be the ideal reader for, and I'll switch out alphas for that story. But that's, that's what I look for. It's worth pointing out that Alessandra's in the room and beaming like the sun to be referred to <laughs> as an ideal reader. So, Hello, I'm Nick. And my question is, in second world fiction, can you talk about how to decide between calling a horse just a horse or something unique to the world? Ooh. I would say only rename things if there's a big sort of, if it connects to the core of your story, right? If the question you're asking is about, I don't know, national identity, for example, then it can be very complicated to use an existing uh, uh, country or an existing sort of uh, language structure. So, you know, if unless you're asking the question of what is the meaning of horse, then I wouldn't rename it, right? So, I, but if you're trying to disrupt ideas of like, what do we consider animals? What do we consider a relationship to them? What, what are beasts of burden? Then that's a case where maybe playing with it would give you an opportunity to really do a lot more there. But in general, if it's a horse, call it a horse. Hello, my name is Matthew. Um, how much leeway will an agent generally give a new writer if they like the idea or concept of a story or see promise in it, but it isn't quite there yet? Uh, I wonder who's going to answer this one. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll take no. <laughs> uh, the thing that I talk about a lot is that I work with people, not projects, right? I sign a client. I don't sign a single book. So the answer is if I believe in the person, then I'll all the leeway in the world, right? Uh, that's something that we'll work together to make it right. And, you know, what goes into that decision is hard to articulate in a lot of ways. But I have to be excited about this person's potential to do something really interesting, even if they're not quite there yet. So there are clients I've worked with for years and years and years, and we haven't gotten out with anything. But we're still working together. We're still, you know, honing in on what the right project is or how to do X, Y, or Z. Um, so the, the answer is it depends a lot on, on the person, um, but in the right circumstances, it's okay if that book isn't quite there, so long as I can see you're doing something interesting, and I can see that you are someone who has all the chops, all the drive, all the ambition to get to where you need to get to. Great. So that is all our questions that we have. I'm sure that there are many more burning in your hearts right now, but... Thank you for listening. We have a piece of homework for you. So once again, we're throwing this to Dongwon. So I think uh, the openings of novels are really, really important. It's a great opportunity to hook your reader. And more than that, it's an opportunity to get someone to say, yes, I'm going to spend $20 or whatever it is to buy this book. So what I'd like each of you to do is take the first line of your work in progress or something that you finished and rewrite it three separate times. And make sure that when you write each one, it's not three variations on the same sentence. Try and shake those up as much as possible, right? Try a different voice, try a different style, try different even like points to start the scene and see what jumps out at you. What is the most exciting? What grabs you? What are you excited about to keep going with? And I think that'll tell you a lot about how your opening scenes should work so that you're pulling the reader into your story as forcefully as possible. Perfect. Okay. This has been Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, Dongwon Song, and Howard Taylor. 
If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 